Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to What's Wrong with President Biden's COVID-19 Vaccine Mandate. Please welcome our moderator, Bob Moffitt, Senior Fellow in Health Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am Bob Moffitt, Senior Fellow at the, uh, at the Heritage Foundation, and today we're going to talk about President Biden's vaccine mandate. Uh, this morning, President Biden is imposing a federal vaccine mandate on all private businesses with 100 or more employees, affecting uh, an estimated 80 million Americans. It will come uh, with fines and uh, civil penalties, up to starting at $14,000 per violation. Ladies and gentlemen, such a mandate is unprecedented. It raises a large number of profound questions, the power of the federal government and personal liberty, uh, the relationship between public officials and medical science and medical practice, and the impact of such a, mes uh, of such a mandate on business and labor and the national economy. Well, this morning, uh, we have four outstanding guests uh, who are going to discuss these issues. Uh, our first is Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who is the ranking member of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee of the United States Senate. Uh, before his election in 2010, uh, Senator Johnson was an entrepreneur, the owner and operator of a Wisconsin manufacturing firm. And while the senator has emerged as a major force in a number of oversight investigations by the United States Senate, more recently, uh, he has focused on the impact of vaccine mandates, uh, the pressing need to provide the American people with full, uh, complete, and unbiased scientific information on both the vaccines and also therapeutics. Uh, Dr. Martin McCarry is also with us, who is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he's the editor-in-chief of MedPage Today. A practitioner of surgical oncology, uh, Dr. McCarry has published over 200 scientific articles in professional journals, and the focus of his research has been on the evolution of healthcare innovations in clinical practice. Among his many achievements, Dr. McCarry led the World Health Organization's work group to create global measures of surgical quality. Our next speaker is Paul Larkin, who is a senior legal research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, before coming to Heritage, Paul had an outstanding career in government service. As an assistant uh, solicitor general of the United States, he argued 27 cases before the United States Supreme Court. At Justice, he was also a senior attorney in the criminal divisions, uh, division's organized crime and racketeering section. Following his service uh, at the Department of Justice, Paul served as counsel to the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. He got his law degree at Stanford University, his master's at George Washington University, and his bachelor's uh, at Washington and Lee University, where he graduated summa cum laude. Finally, uh, our, next, our final speaker is Doug Badger, who is a senior fellow in domestic policy uh, at the Heritage Foundation. And Doug has over three decades of experience in Washington policy making. 
Doug was a White House advisor to President George W. Bush on health care. He served in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs. He served at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, was chief of staff to Senate Assistant Majority Leader Don Nichols of Oklahoma, and also chief of staff of the Senate Republican Policy Committee. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce to you the Senator from Wisconsin, Senator Ron Johnson. Well, thank you, Bob, and thank uh, you, Heritage Foundation, for putting on uh, this uh, event uh, to discuss what I consider an incredibly important topic. Uh, I'd like to start just by stating what I think is quite obvious, but it doesn't seem particularly obvious to who I always refer to as the COVID gods, uh, the agency heads, the members of the mainstream media, uh, of social media. But there is so much we do not know about the coronavirus, about COVID-19, about COVID-19 vaccines. Can, can we please be honest about that? All these proclamations, all of these policy responses are, are, are implemented with, by people who just feel like, you know, they represent science, that there can be no second opinions. Certainly, I'm 66 years old. As far as I can think back, when you're facing a serious medical condition, the first thing doctors will tell you is you should really get a second, maybe even a third opinion. That's not allowed today. We're not even allowed to ask certain questions. But here's a question I think every American should ask. Have all these policy responses worked? The shutdowns the mandates, the not only ignoring of, but sabotage of early treatment. I mean, to this day, the NIH guideline treating COVID, unlike any other disease where we say early detection leads to early treatment, provides better outcomes, that's not what we do for COVID. For COVID, the NIH guidelines basically do nothing. Go home afraid, isolate yourself, Hope you don't get so sick or your oxygen levels don't fall too far where all of a sudden you have to go in the hospital and then, oh, by the way, you will lose all freedom. You lose all freedom. So if you take a look at the results of these responses, 750,000 people are now reported to have died with or from COVID. The, the human toll of the shutdowns of these mandates, the trillions of dollars of additional debt on future generations, the psychological harm to young children, the loss of freedom. I'm sorry, I, I hate to report, but I think you have to recognize that our response to COVID has been a miserable failure. And at some point in time, I think we have to understand what Albert Einstein was purportedly was reported to have said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And here we are proposing another policy prescription, mandates, that will be unbelievably destructive to our economy, destructive to our healthcare sector, to our military readiness, to trucking, to transportation, 
And we are just barreling ahead. Throw caution to the wind. Now, one of the things I want to point out is what is being denied by the people pushing these vaccine mandates. Three major things. First of all, they're denying natural immunity. Won't even factor it in. They're also denying what is an unfortunate reality. Listen, I'm a big supporter of Operation Warp Speed. I'm, I'm not anti-vax. I'm, I'm, I've gotten every other vax, not this one, because I had COVID. I've got natural immunity. I wish these vaccines were 100% safe, 100% effective, but they're not. The fact of the matter is the reality, the science tells us that if you're fully vaccinated, you still can get infected. You can transmit. You can get seriously ill. You can die. Let's just acknowledge that fact. I, I held an event yesterday, uh, no, actually Tuesday, with, with about these mandates with also vaccine injured. One, one of the presenters showed a very simple decision tree on the mandates. The first, the box said, does the COVID-19 is the COVID-19 vaccine effective? If yes, it went to the other box. Then the mandates are pointless, right? I mean, if, if, if they're so effective, if you're vaccinated, why do you care whether somebody else is? The other line said, no, they're not effective. It goes to the exact same box. If the vaccines don't prevent infection, don't prevent transmission, what's the point of the vaccines? They are pointless. And of course, the third reality that the vaccine mandate purveyors are denying is vaccine injuries. Now, rare is a relative term. So, when, But whenever I hear because I, I'm dealing with the vaccine injury. Whenever I hear somebody proclaim that vaccine injuries are rare and mild, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me, because they're rare and mild until they happen to you or your loved one. Vaccine injuries are real. Let me give you the stats. For the seasonal flu, on average, over 26 years, we average about 7,550 adverse events reported on the VAER system. On average, 78 deaths per year. For the COVID vaccines in 10 months, we've had 837,000 adverse events reported on VAERS, 17,619 deaths. And oh, by the way, I, I realize that does not prove causality. The other criticism of VAERS is it dramatically understates the number of adverse events. But it's also true that over 5,500 of those deaths have occurred on day zero, one, or two following vaccination. That ought to concern the COVID gods. The American public ought to know that. And before we impose any mandate, before we tr trample on somebody's freedom, force them into a life-altering, gut-wrenching decision. Their job, their livelihood versus putting an experimental vaccine in their arm, we ought to at least acknowledge the fact that vaccine injuries are real. With that, I'll retire. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to question uh, our panel on various aspects of uh, this uh, vitally important issue. Uh, before I get into my colleagues, I want to ask Senator uh, Johnson uh, a, a kind of pointed question, actually, Senator, if you don't mind. Uh, you've uh, been a lightning rod on this issue. Um, 
you've brought this to the attention of your colleagues. Can you just uh, tell me, you know, responding to two things that are very clear, why exactly you're taking a lot of pressure and a lot of heat on this. Why did you decide to do this? Well, you know, I was, I was an advocate for early treatment since May of 2020. And I got a lot of criticism. I was attacked a lot for just advocating that as well. But because of my advocacy, I was contacted by a former Green Bay Packer Hall of Fame lineman named Ken Rucker, whose wife is experiencing a serious vaccine injury, the, the neurological symptoms, the inner vibrations, the numbness. Uh, so when I was connected with them, he was part of a, a group of 2,000 individuals on, on Facebook. And they just wanted to be seen, believed, and heard. That they, they, just, they just wanted to be acknowledged. And so I, I put on an event for them in... Uh, in June to let them tell their stories. And of course I was attacked, you know, rather than above the fold front, front page coverage of these individuals telling their stories, uh, in Wisconsin what it was was a picture of me with a headline so fundamentally dangerous. Yeah. But I, I don't think the truth is dangerous. So again, I've, I've been in contact with the vaccine injured. I've seen how they've been ignored. I see how, how inhumane that is. So I have to advocate for them. All right, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, Paul Larkin. Um, the imposition of this mandate uh, is opposed by many because they can see it, uh, they consider it a, an overreach of, of federal power. And certainly this is going to end up in the courts. But regardless of what the courts eventually decide, uh, Paul, what do you think are the central legal issues um, that are raised by the imposition of this mandate? Start from the basic proposition that is agreed to by everyone. Federal agencies have only whatever authority Congress has vested in them. So for a federal agency to impose a vaccine mandate, you must look to see what statutes grant them the authority to do that or what statutes grant them jurisdiction over a particular area. In this case, we're talking about the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Now, if you look at that statute, it seems clear to me from the text of the provisions dealing with standards, including uh, temporary standards, as well as the text of the act as a whole, and all of the related laws that deal with public health, that OSHA does not have the authority to impose this vaccine. Give me give you a simple example. Uh, OSHA can adopt standards for toxic or harmful physical agents. Toxic generally means poisonous. It's not a term that is used to describe a contagious disease like a virus or a bacterium. And a harmful physical agent doesn't describe a biologic, which is a term used to describe how vaccines are composed. So the standard has to satisfy the law, and it doesn't fit under those. Plus, if you take a look at the other relevant statutes, the one dealing with our healthcare agencies, you will see that it is the Food and Drug Administration that has the authority to regulate drugs or biologics. And a vaccine has a foot in each camp. It is a drug and it is a biologic. And it is the FDA that is responsible for deciding whether a particular vaccine can be distributed in interstate commerce. And it is the CDC that then offers a recommendation to physicians as to when and how it should be used. 
It is not the Department of Labor. It is not the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. I mean, history and common sense also tends to support my interpretation of the text. There has never been a general federal vaccine requirement. That has come from the states. It is the states that have a police power that allows them to regulate business and people to protect the public health. Congress does not have that authority. The states have imposed vaccine requirements, not the federal government, at least not a general federal one. Put aside unique circumstances such as where the federal government tries to regulate what happens in the military to make sure that they are effective in protecting our nation. We're talking about the a general public vaccination. Federal government hasn't done that. And if the federal government were to do that, how likely is it that they would have given this authority to the Department of Labor rather than the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, the predecessor to HHS, or to HHS now, or to one of the components of HHS, like the Food and Drug Administration? In fact, the mere you know, obvious fact that the president did not direct the Secretary of Health and Human Services to impose this requirement like the dog that didn't bark, tells us a great deal. It's HHS that would have this authority, if anybody does, not the Labor Department, because they deal with workplace hazards. And vaccines are not like gloves or masks or gowns. Vaccines have an effect on the human body. Not only are they injected beneath the skin or taken in other ways, they work on the body's chemistry, which gloves do not, which safety glasses do not. It is not a matter that Congress would have told OSHA to deal with. So the, the problem, as I see it, is not a policy one. It's a legal one. And OSHA doesn't have this authority. Thank you very much, Paul. Whether OSHA has the legal authority to do this or not, the most important question for most Americans is how will this affect their health? Dr. Makari, um, normally when doctors and patients get together, they make a determination about what is the proper medical approach, the top, top proper medical procedure. And of course, you have a vast body of scientific information, and you fine tune that information to the particular conditions <coughs> of an individual. Uh, based on your experience uh, looking at this vaccine mandate, what do you think are the major medical drawbacks of, of this approach by the administration? Well, thank you, Dr. Moffitt, and thanks for having me. So we want, I want as many vulnerable Americans who don't already have immunity to be immune with a vaccine because immunity downgrades the infection. It doesn't eliminate it. It downgrades the effect to make it a more manageable illness, and it reduces hospitalization and transmission. Now, what's going to be the most effective way to get people vaccinated? Is it a politician doing a television advertisement or a local physician ex making the case that we had a patient who came in with no immunity, got very ill, went on a ventilator, and just before intubation asked for the vaccine and unfortunately had to be told it has no benefit at that point. The power of testimonials, local medical officials, and the context of that relationship is, I think, the most powerful vehicle to get those at risk uh, immune. If you look at 
the mandate, it does represent uh, to some people the excessive hand of government, and therefore they become hardened to the idea, and it alienates people. We see people who are a hard no simply because they believe the government shouldn't be able to, to do this. Well, that's unfortunate because we might have otherwise convinced those people to get vaccinated. And let's be honest, the mandate does represent a broken promise by every single public health official and elected official in power today. All of them had said, we are not going to do mandates when the vaccine was rolled out. So if you're a patient out there, you're an everyday American and somebody vulnerable that we want to get vaccinated, they have a right to be angry right now. This does represent a broken promise. That, that idea, by the way, of a mandate was introduced, if you if actually remember the day it was introduced to the public, it was in a New York Times op-ed by Dr. Zeke Emanuel, and it came out the day that J&J was pulled off the shelf in an emergency move because of the fears of the risks of the vaccine. We almost sort of forgot uh, where the origin or where, where that mandate came from. So for a lot of people, you know, they have a right to be frustrated right now. They've lost trust in public health, and that's going to hurt us beyond COVID. Final point is I would love to see the same enthusiasm for these mandates for therapeutics. We have some state-of-the-art therapeutics that no one may be a silver bullet, but in combination are pretty impressive. If Even if you avoid the therapeutics where there's controversy, there's solid randomized controlled trials supporting several safe therapeutics, as simple as a hypertonic saline spray and mouthwash and Prozac or fluvoxamine, for which there's solid evidence, and Merck's new drug, which is now authorized and in use in the UK, molnupiravir, cut COVID deaths to zero. No one who's gotten the drug has ever died. And that's in the formal randomized control phase three trial. All of those therapeutics in combination, they, um, uh, uh, so no one should be dying of COVID right now. No one should be dying of COVID. So that is, I wish we saw the same enthusiasm for therapeutics as we are for the mandates. Doctor, before we go on to uh, our colleague, uh, Doug Badger, I wanted to ask you one other question, because I think this is vitally important in the context of what we're dealing with. I do not know how many Americans have had the infection, uh, but you might. The, the issue has to do with this whole issue of natural immunity uh, that Senator Johnson brought up. The question is this. How effective is natural? I mean, this is a real debate. How effective is natural immunity? compared to the vaccines, and what does the professional literature tell us about it? Well, 16 solid, respected studies demonstrate that natural immunity is as effective or more effective. The largest population study ever done out of Israel showed that it's 27 times more effective than vaccinated immunity in preventing symptomatic COVID. Now, that when that came out of the Israeli health ministry, it was around the time that data came out on boosters reducing hospitalization among seniors over 65 tenfold. So here you have two pieces of data coming out of Israel, both large uh, studies, and Dr. Fauci immediately calls the data on boosters, quote unquote, dramatic data, and rushed to create policy around it. That was a tenfold reduction in hospitalization among seniors. The 27-fold level of protection with natural immunity from the same Israeli population data was ignored. And I believe it's for two reasons. One, 
the politically, um, politicians entrenched in a position that every human being with two feet needs to get vaccinated, period, and ign would ignore the evolving science on this. And two is they've told me privately, so people have told me privately, don't talk about natural immunity. People will go out there and just get the infection and not get vaccinated. And I say we can be both honest with the science and still encourage vaccination at the same time. So the data is solid on natural immunity. Uh, all the studies sh show that it's highly effective, except for two, both put out by the CDC, jerry-rigged, the first use what we call statistical phishing, where even though they have data on all 50 states over 19 months, they cherry-picked a two-month interval in the state of Kentucky and said, ah, in this little sliver, natural immunity was worse. And by the way, the rate of infection of both groups, natural and vaccinated, in that study were less than 0.01%, so it's extremely rare. And the other was a study they just came out, and I tweeted a long uh, critique of it. Thank you very, very much, doctor. Uh, I'd like to turn now to uh, Doug Badger, who, as I mentioned earlier, was a health policy advisor to President Bush. Um, Doug, uh, good morning, and uh, thank you for being with us, uh, coming to us from sunny Florida. Uh, there's a lot of sanity in Florida, from what I understand. Um, uh, Doug, uh, as Senator Johnson pointed out, uh, higher vaccination rates are a very, very good thing. Uh, however, federal mandates on employers, uh, from what we hear, are going to have a marginal increase in the number of vaccinated adults, according to the, according in, in fact to the administration's own data. Why do you think? I mean, based on your experience as a policy advisor uh, to the White House, why do you think this is such a bad idea? Well, thank you, Bob, uh, for for that question. Good morning, everyone. Uh, when you take a public policy decision, as I'm sure Senator Johnson will tell you you have to take account of the broader context. You always have to look at the pros and cons. And the elephant in the room about this mandate is the fact that we are experiencing an acute labor shortage right now in the US. As of August, there were 10.4 million unfilled jobs, 1.5 million in critical sectors such as healthcare and social services. Hospital employment dropped by 165,000 workers between February and May of last year. As of September, hospitals had uh, refilled uh, fewer than half of those vacancies. Nursing homes are worse. They've shed 410,000 employees. They are operating at 12% below their pre-pandemic uh, workforce levels. Education, we lost 19,000 school workers in the month of September alone. Um, 25,000 quit their jobs in August, uh, part of the record 4.3 million quits that we had in the, in the month of August. Now, obviously, the causes of these labor shortages are many and complex, but vaccine mandates can only move them in the wrong direction. Consider what's happened in places that already have adopted mandates. New York's largest hospital system had to fire 1,400 of its 76,000 employees, about 1.8% of their workforce. Nationally, around 40% of hospitals have implemented a mandate, and they've lost an average of 1% to 2% of their workforce. And this is especially problematic with respect to, to rural hospitals. 
we can expect an OSHA general mandate to produce similar results throughout the economy. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll taken last month found that 37% of unvaccinated workers, 5% of adults overall, say they would leave their jobs if their employer required them to get a vaccine or get tested weekly. When labor supply is tight, government policy should encourage people to return to work. And these job or job ultimatums, I think, can only move the economy in a much worse direction. Right. Well, Doug, let me follow up on something on this. And you know, this this mandate is is imposed directly on employers. And if they don't comply, they face thousands of dollars uh, worth of uh, fines, uh, very serious fines, beginning at, as I said earlier, fourteen thousand dollars up to one hundred and thirty six thousand dollars per violation. Um, (laughs) Very, very significant fines. Uh, But employers, they don't have any experience, as far as I understand, in enforcing anything like a vaccine mandate. What, you know, based again on your experience, what kind of practical problems do you think that employers are going to face here? Well, there are numerous. I'll hit a few. And this is based, I will say, on a first reading today of the emergency temporary standard and some of the accompanying documents the Labor Department issued this morning. The first thing is, do I have 100 employees? And that becomes very much a moving target. You do count part-time workers and temporary workers, but if you have someone from a staffing agency, that person doesn't count. They count against the staffing agency's headcount. Similarly for independent contractors. If your employee is a minor, that counts. So uh, the other question is multiple locations. If you have four locations, each with 25 employees, you are covered by the mandate. If you have 99 workers at one location, you are not covered by the mandate. The next question on headcount comes with when. Uh, Labor labor forces can uh, vary with time. The headcount, according to the Labor Department, is as of tomorrow morning, November 5th. If you have fewer, if you have more than 100 employees on November 5th, you are covered by the mandate. If your headcount subsequently drops, you are still covered by the mandate. What if you have fewer than 100 employees tomorrow? Well, then you're not covered by the mandate, but if your headcount increases, think about temporary hires over the Christmas season, and go over 100, you are now covered under the mandate and remain covered even if your headcount subsequently uh, drops. Then there's the practical question of how do you know if your employee is vaccinated? Well, the CDC card um, uh, certainly counts. What if they've lost the CDC card and can't get a new one? Well, then there's a a fairly complex self-attestation document that the employee has to take. What about those who are unvaccinated? Well, obviously they have to take weekly tests and they have to present a a laboratory documentation of a negative result. They can't say, hey, I went and got tested today and the lab says they'll have the results back first thing Monday. They can't report to work, you need the negative results. What about at-home self-tests, which I will say are a wonderful idea that the US unfortunately has not uh, pursued. Well, you can do an at-home self-test but you have to do it in front of your employer 
or on what they call an authorized telehealth proctor. I'm not sure what that is. So unless you're willing to swab your nose in front of your employer, you probably have to get a more expensive test where the results are delayed. The employers have to keep record of every vaccine documentation and of every test documentation. Those are subject to an employer health record uh, rules under the Americans with Discrimination, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. So that if word gets out that Joe tested positive last week, well, the employer has to face some liability and potentially show that they have in fact complied with federal privacy laws. And oh, by the way, if OSHA asks for those records, you have to supply them to the Labor Department within four hours of the, of the OSHA request. Employer also has to pay, play judge, determining whether an individual's religious exemption qualifies for a religious exemption, including from testing, something that, as Paul will tell you, judges are ruminating on even as we speak. Uh, they will have to play lawyer. Uh, the, the, the administration's improvisational approach to mandates means that private employers could potentially be under competing federal mandates. You, if you're a federal contractor, there's one set of rules. The OSHA vaccine mandate, of course, uh, we know it applies more generally in the economy. There's also a June 2021 OSHA emergency temporary standard for healthcare workers, which does not require that healthcare workers be vaccinated. That mandate will, is coming out of CMS today. All of these are different. All of them have different qualifications. And please don't ask me what happens if you're a federal con a hospital who's a federal contractor and has 100 employees. I don't know what you comply with. And finally, there's the competition between federal and state mandates. Uh, the federal government, the, the first thing, if you go on the uh, website today, the first set of questions they have are absolutely emphatic. Federal law applies. If your state says you can't have mandates, the federal government says you do. Well, you have to comply with the federal mandate. And by the way, that applies in the 21 states that enforce workplace safety laws. And the, the, um, uh, the documents today threaten those states saying that they will take away their status. Uh, good luck enforcing workplace safety laws in, in a state like that. But if you're, from the perspective of an employer, you have a legally suspect federal mandate, a conflicting legally suspect state mandate, and you have to figure out uh, what applies uh, in, your, in your workplace. So then there's finally the pra practical matter. There are 800 roughly OSHA inspectors. There are roughly 164,000 firms with at least 100 workers. Uh, according to one former uh, OSHA policy advisor, Debbie Berkowitz, her estimate is that it would take 160 years for OSHA inspectors to visit every one of those sites at least once. So there are practical problems with this. The fact that it took OSHA two months nearly to try to sort out all these questions and take a crack at the rule, I think tells you that the challenges employers face in implementing this rule will be even greater. Thank you very, very much, Doug. Rube Goldberg, call your office. The, um, 
what I'd like to do now is I'd like to uh, go to audience questions. And uh, Marguerite, I think you have some questions coming from uh, the audience. First. Oh, thank you very much. Senator, that sounds like something for you. I, I would say with information. Um, as I said, just pointing out the illogic of the mandates. They're, they are pointless. Uh, to me, that'd be the, the best weapon, but you know, unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult. The, the courts have been uh, pretty uh, supportive of, of mandates, and I, I understand that. It's you know private firms. They can set terms of condition. Um, in order to have expect the courts to step in because you know, the, the, the OSHA rules may be unconstitutional. That'll take months, if not years, to actually determine that. So people are just in a vice. And, you know, just, just to relay my own personal experience with, with many nurses, many doctors who are the heroes of COVID, they had the courage and compassion to treat COVID patients. Many caught COVID. Some died, most survived. Now they're seeing and treating COVID injuries. I can... I can tell you they will not get the vaccine. We will lose decades, decades of experience. I'm only over here, I heard of one hospital. They no longer have full-time nursing staff. They're using traveling nurses. Every, the nurses I'm talking to are getting texts daily. You know, become a traveling nurse, earn two, three, four times uh, what you're making at your current job. This is gonna be so destructive and disruptive to a healthcare industry, but it's gonna be very difficult to battle this because you, you, the courts aren't going to intervene. Congress won't intervene. Uh, this is a real travesty. Okay. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, another question. I was wondering uh, what the opinions are surrounding weekly testing. I know the vaccine is the major focus, but it seems like the testing is a good option to keep people safe. Uh, and a follow-up question is if the temporary standard is challenged, can <coughs> weekly testing still be uh, required? Dr. McCarry, do you uh, have any thoughts on this? Yeah, let's be honest. So uh, the the idea of testing people who are not vaccinated, when, by the way, the whole lexicon is wrong. We should be talking about the immune and non-immune, not the vaccinated and unvaccinated. That was a, a uh, imprecise framework that was imposed upon us, despite many of us trying to use a different vocabulary. There was a strong sentiment that was very overt by many that this was a form of punishment, that this was punitive. And one thing in medicine is we have never crossed that line and we never shall, that medical tests or interventions would be punitive. We've been taught from day one, and it's part of our great heritage that we're always honest and fair with people. For the first time, we've crossed that line to say this is a punishment, and that's why people have said, and these are high-level people in the Biden administration or immediate former advisors that have said, we need to test people twice a day at their own expense. And so what we we're seeing are, is basically a form of class warfare from being out of touch with everyday people. And I can tell you as a physician, you see all kinds of people in America, and I'm constantly reminded that most Americans don't live like me. Half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And when they're put out of their work because the antibodies in their blood system are not authorized by Dr. Fauci as the right type of COVID antibodies. Uh, that's an American tragedy. Rich people have done very well in this pandemic. Most are remodeling their homes and they're, they're not making them smaller. You can't even find clips and nails and wood and ceramic tiles. 
This has been a very good uh, time for wealthy people in America, but the other half of America has had a very different experience. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, does the rule this morning speak to all remote employees? Do they count the 100 employee threshold as well? Yes, I think, uh, Doug, you've looked at the regulation. Yeah. Does it apply to remote employees? I don't uh, know how yeah. it would, but you know, God knows. Yeah. The headcount does, the, the vaccine doesn't. And by the way, um, if you are an employer observing this, um, compliance attorneys are paid very well for very good reason. My advice is free and worth every penny. It's based on a reading this morning of the rule. But yes, when you do your headcount, you count remote employees, you count employees who work exclusively outdoors. But employers, who, but employees who don't enter the workplace are not subject to the uh, vaccine or, or or testing requirement. Okay. A follow-up to uh, Senator Johnson: Do you think the oh, Do you think the goal of this mandate and um, and lots of healthcare workers is intentional? Um, might be effort to impact our healthcare system. And then a federal system, a federal government takeover of healthcare. Well, again, I, I, there's so much about our response to COVID I, I can't explain it because it makes no sense. The, the mandate is chief among those. So when something makes no sense, and you can just lay it out as, as I as that one decision tree slide laid it out, the, the, these mandates are pointless and they are so destructive. What's going on? I mean, the, the only conclusion I can come to is there there has been on the part of many people, just a desire to have a vaccination program, whether it's the seasonal flu, or now they've got the opportunity of, of, a, of a pandemic to get a vaccine in every arm. Is it all about social control? Is it all about a social score? Nothing else really seems to make sense to me. I, I would like to think that's not the case, but I have no other explanation. Yes, uh, this message is for Paul. What will the courts do with the OSHA rule if there's no authority from Congress to do this mandate? Well, there are 600 plus federal judges. And so the, uh, the likelihood of there being unanimity is between nil and zero. So I don't think that is gonna be the result. We won't see every judge come up with the same answer. But I think at the end of the day, as the cases work their way through the trial courts to the appellate courts to the state and U.S. Supreme Court, what you will wind up seeing is the courts will agree that OSHA does not have the authority to adopt this rule. Now, unfortunately, uh, to the extent people in the administration know that that is where this is heading, what they're doing is gaming the system. Uh, they, they did this in the summer with respect to the CDC home eviction mandate. They knew the Supreme Court was going to strike it down, but they went ahead and did it anyway, simply for political reasons. Uh, and to the extent they're using that same strategy here, uh, what you're going to have is a lot of the harms that my colleagues on this panel have talked about occur, simply because uh, the administration didn't go to Congress, which could have decided all of these issues that we're talking about. So what we have is a circumstance where I think eventually it'll get struck down, but there'll be a fair amount of harm that's caused along the way. 
Thank you, Paul. Are there any questions from the audience? Is there a, any any question here at all from the audience? Anybody specifically? Yes. Um, yes. Ed Heiselmeyer here at Heritage. Um, Senator, I had a, a political question for you. I understand that you and your Republican colleagues will be uh, sponsoring a resolution to uh, it's under the Congressional Review Act to reverse this. Um, and do you have any expectation that if there is strong public opposition, you might gain uh, support for that across the aisle? I mean, I would hope so. Uh, when you take a look at the uh, the jobs that, that are most affected by this, again, they're, they're not the jobs in the ivory tower in the in the C suites. They're they're really the people that work, that, that do the jobs that uh, uh, make this country great uh, in unions, that type of thing. So you would hope that some of those constituencies that oftentimes support uh, Democrat lawmakers would put a little pressure and bring some sanity to this process. But you know, what we've seen is, is pretty much a, a lockstep support for whatever President Biden wants to do, no matter how economically or politically destructive it is. So you know, I can hope and pray, but uh, I'm not holding my breath. Well, listen, thank you very, very much, Senator. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Like all good things come to an end. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity that you've all uh, provided us today to hear some expert opinion. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that this is an unprecedented mandate. Uh, the, the tragedy of all this is that the president has, has denigrated people who have not gotten the, the, uh, the vaccination. Uh, the right policy going ahead is to trust the American people to make the right decision. And our job, it seems to us, is to provide them with the very best information available so they can make the best decisions for themselves and their loved ones. And with that, I'd like to thank you all. Please uh, give our panel a hand. Thank you.